glad to be on this, uh, have the opportunity to be up here this morning in Pastor Malcolm's absence. I always enjoy it. Um, I'm thankful for you being here because you knew Pastor Malcolm wasn't going to be here today and you took a risk. You, you said, I'm going to show up and just see what happens and I'm glad you're here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you hath he quickened, that means to bring to life, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation. That word conversation means lifestyle. We all were of that persuasion, that lifestyle at one time in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace you are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Amen, amen. Hey, let's pray, and I want to invite you to be seated. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we know the weather, it is nasty. God, I'm sure there's people who were, uh, 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 that, that were convinced they shouldn't come today. But God, I believe you got a message and a word that will encourage us and challenge us. God, I pray that you would use me today. Lord, hide me behind the cross. Use me, Lord. Remind me of all the things I study for, but Lord, help me use a filter to know what to say and what not to say. God, that you would go before me. Lord, we love you this morning. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Um, we are in the season, one of my favorite seasons. It's Christmas time. Y'all, y'all like Christmas? Anybody like Christmas? I love Christmas. I ain't ashamed to admit it. All right. I, I love I love everything about it. I love the lights. I, I, I love the I, I love the atmosphere. Everybody, the music playing. When you go to stores, you hear those songs playing. It's only about twelve different songs the whole year, but I listen to them all over on repeat. The only thing I don't enjoy is Hallmark movies. I can't get into them. Uh, my wife, she is obsessed with the Hallmark Channel. They all got the same actors with the same plot. You got a small town girl who owns a coffee shop with. Big city guy who moves into the town, wants to buy the coffee shop. Somehow they fall in love, and by the end, they're kissing. All right? And so that's the plot of every single Hallmark movie. Uh, now, I, I, I do enjoy everything about it. I, I enjoy, I have kids. Some of y'all have kids, you have grandkids, you have people you spoil. I remember, some of y'all might remember this too. I remember getting the Toys R Us catalog. It, so it even had Sears catalogs too. But the toy, it was about the size of a phone book. Now, I shared this on Wednesday night, and kids looked at me like I was stupid because they didn't even know what a phone book was. <laughs> I'm, real, I'm like, man, I'm getting old. These people are even. But I remember getting a Toys R Us catalog and going through it with a marker, and you'd circle everything you wanted. Now, I don't know what I thought my parents did for a living, <laughs> but somehow I thought we was loaded growing up. Like, we had more than enough money to do all that, and so I'd circle everything, everything. I, I just loved it. I loved all the memories of Christmas, the baking, the smells, all that good stuff. And I think Christmas, 
gives us an opportunity to do what we do best, and that's to be selfish. Now, you might be thinking, what do you mean? We are now able to ask for whatever we want and not have any repercussions for it. I want a new car for Christmas. I want, I want a new purse for Christmas. That's a $400 purse. It's Christmas. You know, like all of a sudden, we're able, we have freedom to be selfish. We have freedom to ask for whatever we want. Uh, my kids made their Christmas list this year. And they have the same mentality as a kid now that I did when I was younger. I'm looking at their list. My daughter wants a, a brand new iPhone. I don't even have a brand new iPhone. Why am I going to get you one? You know, I, they want these four, five, six hundred dollar items. Uh, but it gives us permission to be selfish for one time a year. And nobody asks questions. You can literally go to your relatives and say, I want money for Christmas. And they're OK with it because it's Christmas time. We have permission to be selfish at Christmas. Now, what I have noticed, though. What I've noticed is this mentality of asking for what we want and expecting it to happen can creep in to other areas of our life. For instance, into our spiritual life, where somehow over the years and over our time of being saved, we have now manipulated God into being some type of celestial Santa Claus where we ask him to do something and we get mad when he doesn't. We, we expect him to follow through on our prayer request. We, we get upset when bad things happen to good people. And somehow we have, desi- we have developed this, this sense of entitlement as if God owes us something. And we get disappointed when he doesn't deliver. Now, my, my, my main objective today, if y'all will hang with me, I know it's raining outside and the sound of rain hitting a tin roof will put anybody to sleep. But I'm hoping you'll hang in there because my hope today is this, that you will see the condition you were in, what God has done for you, and that you will come to a realization that if God never does a single loving thing ever again in your life, you will be thankful for what he's already done. And you will be praising him daily because of the goodness of what he's shown you when you didn't deserve a thing. And so when that time comes, when you feel disappointed that God didn't deliver, you can look back and say, but God, you delivered me. That's my prayer and hope today. Listen, everybody in here, we share the same story. And what I want to help us do, if you have your outline, we're going to look at number one, the reality of our situation from Ephesians chapter two, the reality of our situation. When we read Ephesians chapter two, when the first three verses, we see everybody in here, we have the same story. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you were. I don't care how good you think you are. We all have the same story, and that was, I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's everybody's story. Who is a born-again believer of Christ in this room and watching me at Fairview and listening to me online, that is your story. You were dead, but now you are alive. And I don't care. Listen, I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care if your mama brought you to church before you was born. She was nine months pregnant, delivered you on the altar of the church. Pastor picks you up, slaps your hiney. The first words come out of your mouth was hallelujah. You're still dead and you had to be made alive. All right. Everybody has the same type of story. And so no matter how much of an angel you think you were, you still had to be transferred at one point in your life from death to life because you were dead in the trespasses of your sin. Look in verse one of chapter two. It says, and you hath he quickened. Remember that word again means to make alive. You hath he quickened who were dead and trespasses and sins. That word dead 
I looked it up in the Greek. You know what it means? It means dead. <laughs> Lifeless. It actually gave another little caveat to that definition. I loved it. It says, unresponsive to life-giving influences. I thought about that. You know, there was a time in every unbeliever's life where you did not respond to the gospel. That you did not pursue the things of God. That you did not desire God. That you ran from God. You were unresponsive to life-giving influences. You were dead in your sins. You did not pursue God. You were in a spiritual grave, and the only thing you were capable of doing was living a life of sin. That is your story. I don't care if you were saved at five years old. There was still a moment in your life where you were captivated by sin. Nobody has to teach a four-year-old how to sin. They lie by nature. It's in them. It's in them. And so you may be saying, well, okay, I, I, I remember being, you know, not the best person, but I wasn't that bad. Well, let, 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 me, let me help you out. Let me, let me help you out with this. Uh, I, I'm going I'm to call people. Michael, would you come up here? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embarrass you. I'm going to embarrass somebody else. Who else am I going to embarrass today? Uh, 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 um, David, would you come up here? You try to not make eye contact with me. You lost. Um, <laughs> all right, so we're going to try to stay within the boundaries here because fair of you needs to see. So, Michael, you stand on that line. David, you stand over here on this line. So you might be saying, well, I was a pretty good person. So we're going to illustrate this. Everybody, right now, I want you to pretend that what we are standing on is a boat. All right, what are we standing on? All right, thank you. So that's what we're going to pretend. We're on a boat right now. Now, now Michael over here is a pretty good dude. Grew up in a Christian home, was prayed over all the days of his life, went to church every time the doors were open, got saved at a young age, never cussed, did his homework on time, showed up when curfew was ready. I mean, he, he was an ideal child growing up all the way into adulthood. He's married, got kids. Man, he's, he's doing the best he knows how. David, on the other hand, this is a bad dude right here. I mean, he kicks puppies, pushes down grandmas, put babies in headlocks. I mean, this guy is ruthless. I mean, as mean as they come. Now, Michael might be thinking, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I mean, I'm, pretty, I'm, not, I'm not near as bad as that guy right there. You keep talking about we all had the same story. I ain't got the same story as that guy. I ain't never kicked a grandma, right? You might be, say, you might be thinking that. But I, I, again, what are we standing on right now? So what I want you to understand even though you may have, be different in your upbringings, you're both in the same. You both have the same condition. You're both dead in your sin. Before Christ, there is no hope. No matter how bad you are, no matter how good you are, you're both standing on the same boat. Does that make sense? Okay, y'all have a seat. Thank you, brother. David has never kicked a puppy or pushed down a grandma. I don't want y'all to go out there and try to beat him up after church. But this is the reality. There is a point where we are far from God. We didn't know God. We didn't love God. Didn't want to know God. We did what was right in our own eyes. The Bible says that we did things to the, according to the course of this world. The course is its perversion, its culture, its, its systems. That our conversation was, our lifestyle was that way before Christ. That we all share the same story before Christ. And humanity's story didn't start out this way. Humanity's story started in Genesis where God created man put him in the garden, and there was perfect fellowship. Adam, it says, Adam walked in the coolness of the day with God. It didn't even have to, listen, it didn't even take faith to believe there was a God because God was present, tangible in the garden. Could you imagine having that fellowship and relationship with God where he is there with you in the garden, you walk together in the coolness of the day, and you get the fellowship with God? But then we know what happened. 
God gave Adam one command, do not take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says that Eve took of the fruit and gave it to Adam. Everybody's making fun of Eve. I I saw a meme the other day. It says uh, women don't know where they want to eat because last time they made a choice, sin happened. So, yeah, (laughs) that's a slow simmer right there. You had to catch up to that one. But this is what I've come to know. Adam was put in charge. He was the head. He was the one given the instructions. And so when sin entered, it entered through Adam. And if, there were, if Ancestry.com was able to go, about, go thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years all the way back unto Adam, you'll find out that you are a direct relation to Adam. And so he is your great, 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 great grandfather. And the one thing you inherited from Adam is a sin nature. And so when you are born, every living, breathing child is born with a sin nature. That means we have a proclivity to sin. We lean towards sin. We have a desire for sin. That is what we know. That's who we are. And, and, and the sin entered into the cosmos, and when sin entered, it fractured everything. It broke everything. Where there used to be perfect fellowship in the garden, that, that broke now, now man has become separated from God. Are we tracking together? We understand this was our condition. This, this is who we were. It says we were dead in the trespasses of our sin. We, we were all in the same boat. So number one, the reality of our situation, we were dead. Verse two, we see that we were deceived. Deceived. It says wherein... In time past, you walked according to the course of this world. It's systems, it's perversion, it's culture. Pastor Malcolm preached last week. He did a fantastic job breaking this topic down about the course of the world. He says, according to the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is? That's Satan. Satan is ruling and controlling all things on this world. It says the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So he's speaking of Satan. Satan is the one who controls all the things going on right now. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in, in, in the music industry. You see it in social media. You see it on the news outlets. You see it, you see it everywhere. You see it in, in big tech. You see them constantly purging and pushing out Christian thought and Christian conservatism off of platforms everywhere. Think about this. You saw it big time during the pandemic. Because what were they doing? They shut down everything, but then as everything started to reopen, they kept the churches shut down. Listen, they were opening up strip clubs and closing down the churches. Tell me that is not a manipulation of Satan himself behind the scenes working and doing things. So we see that this world is controlled and manipulated by the spirit of the, uh, uh, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Satan is the unseen force behind all that's happening. Basically, he is the puppeteer and humanity was his puppet. And the Bible says at one time, you were one of his puppets. You belonged to him. You were deceived. You were manipulated. And you might be thinking, I was always a good person. You know, a good way how he can deceive you is make you religious. Just because you come to church and sit in a pew every Sunday does not mean you are close to God. Matter of fact, that is the most dangerous place you can be is being in the church and far from God. Billy Graham says the greatest mission field there ever is is the church pew. Because so many people are deceived by thinking because I go to church, I must be a child of God. No, you're not. You were deceived. You were a puppet on a string. 
He says that you are uh, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You were under that influence. What a terrible position to be manipulated by an unseen force and you don't even know what's happening. That was our condition. That's who we were. And, and when one, I heard somebody say this, the greatest deception, the greatest thing that devil, the devil is trying to do is make you believe that he doesn't exist. Because the longer you stay naive to his existence, the longer he can use you and manipulate you, deceive you, and puppet you around. Listen, there is an agenda. We know it. We know it. As believers in Christ, we see it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it says this. In whom the God of this world, speaking of Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. He has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. This was you. You were blinded, dead in your sins, deceived. That was you at one point. That is your story. Some of you in this room, that is your story right now. That's you currently. And the result of this spiritual blindness has now led us to be distant from God. We are now distant from God. Look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 and verse 3. He says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, its systems, perversion, its culture, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience are those who willfully turn their back on God, who are disobedient to God, rebel against God. He says, Among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle, in the time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. So being spiritually dead and following the ways of this world has now led us to be sinners, right? We are in sin. It's gratifying both the lust inwardly and outwardly. That, is, that was the condition we were in. And then because of that, it has led us to be empty, empty. King Solomon had wine, women, and wealth. Got to experience everything the world had to offer. And after he went and experienced everything the world had to offer, at the end of the day, at the end of that trial, he wrote down with pen and paper, he says, it's all vanity, vanity. It's empty. There's no satisfaction in it. There's no point in it. And, and so through the rebellion of Adam, we see that it fractures everything, breaks everything, and it takes us out of the presence of God, which is what, what God's original plan was, is for us to be in his presence, have perfect fellowship with him. Sin fractured that, removed us out of that. Now the remainder of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, if you read the Scripture, you see the story of God constantly pursuing broken, fallen man. That is the story of God. Our stories were broken in sin. His story is that he's pursuing us. And he's taking action towards us to bring us back into perfect harmony with each other. In verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says that we were by nature children of wrath. Now I want you to think about this for a second. When somebody ever says, we're all God's children... I want you to quote to them Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, because it tells us at one time, no, we were children of wrath. Basically, we were an object of his wrath. We were not his children. Now, we all may be God's creation, but we are all not God's children. At one time, we were far from God. 
We didn't desire God. We were dead in our sins. We were deceived by this world. We were a puppet on a string. We had no hope. And by, by default, we were far from God. We were not his, his, his children. And so what happens with a lot of people is they get stuck in the fall. In other words, they're constantly trying to feel they, they know something's broken. They feel it inside of them. Something is not right. Something's askew. Something's amiss. And so they spend their life trying to find pleasure, trying to fill that void in their life. And they find things like drugs, alcohol, women, work. They do whatever they can to find temporary relief from the void inside themselves, but it never works. It's always temporary. And it puts them on a treadmill. And people who are religious do the same thing because they keep trying to be good enough. Keep trying to be good enough. And it's a treadmill that never lets up because you feel like you have to keep earning it and maintaining it and earning it and maintaining it. And you get stuck in this pattern because you know you're far from God, but you're not sure how you need to fix it. And so what we need to do is learn how to move past what God has already freely given. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to earn it. And the reason why we're always feeling uh, uh, defeated by sin, people feel defeated by sin, defeated by temptation, is because they're trying to fight that sin with with willpower and therapy. If I just try harder, if I make a New Year's resolution, I'm going to stick with it this year. I'm going to I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to not I'm not going to I'm not going to give into that no more. And what happens is willpower only take you so far, don't it? Ever tried to diet? You do good for about two weeks, three weeks. You lose some weight. Pretty happy with it. But you're eating nothing but like broccoli and, and, and you smell a box of chocolates every now and then. That's about all your diet consists of. Yeah, I mean, you, just, you have no nutrients. You're just struggling. And then one day you come home. Maybe it's been stressful. Maybe it's been a hard day. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to eat one little Oreo. Next thing you know, you wake up on the floor, crumbs everywhere. You just blacked out. You don't even know what happened. All right? You went into a sugar coma, and the next day you just, you're just covered in ants and, and crumbs. You don't know what happened. What happened? Willpower only took you so far. And then you defaulted to what your natural response was. This is what happens in our sin. We, we, if you try to beat it in our willpower, you might have success for a week, two weeks, maybe a month. But eventually, it's going to creep back up into your life. And you won't have the willpower to say no again. And so people who are far from God, who are constantly trying to defeat the problems in their life with willpower, constantly feel defeated. Because the only thing that will defeat sin is love. And what I mean by that is love of Jesus. In other words, you fall so in love with his word, so in love with fellowship with him, so in love with his presence, that when you're over here with him and that sin enters back into the situation, back into your peripheral, you look at that sin and you say, you want me to give up this for that? You're crazy. You want me to turn my back on my Savior to come enjoy you for a season? No, thank you. Because what you find in Jesus is so much greater than what you find in this world. And until you find Jesus, then you will constantly be looking in the world that leaves you empty time and time and time again. But you feel like you're stuck on this treadmill. Feel like you kind of keep going through this cycle over and over and over again. It's because you haven't found Jesus. You haven't fallen in love with him. Once you fall in love with him, you'll find the resources to fight the things of this world. But by yourself, it ain't going to happen. By yourself, it ain't going to happen. 
So we've been deceived. We've been deceived. We've been made distant. What we need to do is come to a realization that we are sinners in need of saving. There's a, we live in a messed up world. I know messed up things happen. But we need to quit blaming the world for our problems and take ownership and just say, you know what? I'm a sinner. And I do sinful things sometimes. See, people who are far from God don't understand the need for a Savior. And so they start placing blame on everything else but themselves. They don't see the, real, the reality of their situation, that they are prone to sin, that their old nature, their, their, their inherited nature is something that is prone to sin. And so when Jesus comes and he offers himself to that person, a lot of times they, they refuse to, to, to turn their life over to Jesus because they think it can't be that easy. It's got to be that plus something. Maybe if I change jobs, maybe if I change spouses, maybe if I get a raise, maybe if I get a new car, maybe if I get a new house, maybe that will fix my situation. But it can't be as easy as giving my life to Jesus. It's got to be that plus something. You have been deceived. The enemy wants you to believe it can't be that easy. And he's constantly going to put you back on that treadmill to try to earn it to try to work for it, to try to maintain it. And he'll wear you out until the day that you die and you'll be just as far from God as you were when you were born. He wants to keep you in your sin, dead. He wants to keep you deceived because ultimately that keeps you far from God, keeps you distant from him. That is our story. That is who we are. I mean, we're really dumb, by the way. I almost put that one on there. But I didn't know how y'all, how y'all feel. But at one point, we were dumb. The Bible says we are sheep. Sheep are dumb animals. Sheep need a shepherd. And at one point, we were sheep without a shepherd. All right, so we're, we're pretty dumb. We get ourselves in precarious situations sometimes. We, we find ourselves doing the same thing over and over again without the same, with the same result, thinking it's going to change somehow. We, we put ourselves in bad places. We're dumb. That's who we were. Now we get to verse 4. Verse 4 says this, my first, man, I love these two words, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, but God. The word rich there in that, that verse, it literally means, the Greek means abounding, overflowing. In other words, he don't just have enough for you, he has more than enough for you. It's overflowing, it's never exhausting, it's infinite in its ways. You, you know how really rich people show off how wealthy they are? This is what they do. They buy fancy cars, they buy fancy houses. They buy pretty wives, right? They, they, they wear jewelry. They, they show it off by the things that they buy, right? You know how God showed off how rich he is? He bought you. That's how he shows off how rich he is, is by he purchasing you with his mercy, his rich mercy. He purchased you. That is how he shows off to the universe that I am wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> I love because what was impossible for us, God steps into the equation, is no longer impossible. And this right here, I hope you understand, this is the only story there is. This is the only story there is. This is it. Because there is no such thing as, well, I just was just trying to become a better me. I, I turned over a new leaf in my life. You know, I'm just trying harder. 
Because that's a trap that will wreck your life. The only story there is, is that is I was dead and I was far from God and I had no desire for him. And I kept repeating bad cycles in life. But then God, but God, rich in mercy, came down to where I was and picked me up and he lifted me up into a stable place and he restored my soul. He made me whole again. He gave me a new nature and a new heart. That is the only story there is. There is no story where you try harder, do better, get therapy, turn over a new leaf, and all of a sudden you're right with God. That is not how it happens. You were incapable You were dead, far from God, distant from him, had no desire for him. But God, rich in mercy, came down to you. That is the story. We get so hung up on trying to be good enough and whatever that means. But then you read the scripture and you realize, you know what? God actually likes me. No, actually, he loves me. He loves you like you are, but he loves you too much to keep you like you are. But he's saying, just come as you are. Don't worry about getting cleaned up, being good enough, trying harder, turning over a new leaf. He says, I've seen your mess. I've seen your problems. I've seen your struggles. I love you. That's the story. And all the reasons you think you can come up with on why he shouldn't love you are not good enough. Why? Because his mercy is too deep of a well to exhaust. And it can cover every problem, every scenario, every situation you think you can come up with that will make you disqualified from his love. It is not good enough. It, where, there is, where there is sin, grace abounds. So what we see is that he's redeeming us. The response of our Savior from our situation. Our situation was that we were dead, that we were deceived, that we were distant from him. The response of our Savior is now he comes and he redeems us. Redeem means to buy back. It's a term of the marketplace. Remember, God created humanity. There was perfect fellowship with him. But then sin, sin entered into the equation that broke everything. And because sin entered and it broke the relationship with God, we become a new, we have a new owner. Our owner is Satan, the, the master of this world, the ruler of this world. And he puts us on a string. He uses us as his puppet. And so what God does is he steps down onto this earth through the form of Jesus Christ. And that way he could purchase us back to himself. And what happened on that cross is he signed the check for us. And on resurrection day, the check cleared. That's how he purchased you. He bought you back. He redeemed you, lifted you up from the place that you were and set you back into a place you belong. He redeemed you. Verse 5, look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, has made us alive in Christ. Even when you were dead in your sins, Jesus' resurrection resurrected me. What's the difference between grace and mercy? He speaks of mercy before this when he speaks of grace here. See, mercy is, is God keeping from you what you deserve. What we deserved in our fallen state was punishment in hell. And so he, he's, he's, he's going to keep that away from you because that's what we deserved. And grace is giving you what you don't deserve. In other words, he gave you his favor, his blessing, his mercy. He gave that to you freely. And so when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, God floods our life with mercy and grace, keeping back the flames of hell and give us, giving us entry into the gates of heaven. That is mercy and grace. I heard one of my friends, he, he described it this way. He says, uh, everybody is born, think about your bank account. Maybe y'all were a lot more responsible than I was when I, when I was a teenager. But I remember overdrawing my account a lot when I was younger. And you would check your, your bank account and there would be a negative sign in front of the numbers. 
and you're like, well, <laughs> I guess I ain't getting McDonald's today. <laughs> I, I'm negative $32. All right. So what would happen? You would overdraw and you would have a negative. In other words, I'd have to make $32 just to break even. Right. And so uh, he, he described it this way. Mercy and grace this way. He says everybody when they're born is born with a debt on their account. A debt too great for you to pay. Too, be, too big for you to pay. And the situation is, I can't help you pay your debt because I got my own debt to pay. And we're all walking around with this debt, this negative equity on our life. It's a bad situation. And no matter how hard you work in your life, no matter how many good things you do, how many old ladies you help cross the street, how many doors you open, how many churches you attend, no matter how many mission trips you go on, it will never be enough to earn to pay off the debt that is on your account. It's too great of a number. So what mercy does is mercy cancels the debt and it brings you to zero. Now that's good news. We don't got no more debt, but we still broke. <laughs> we still at zero. But mercy cancels the debt. What grace does is it applies to your account what you didn't earn. And it puts you way into the positive in the way that you couldn't earn it yourself. That is what mercy and grace does. Mercy cancels your debt. Grace applies credit to your, and to your account. So now that we are made right with Christ. That's good stuff. Amen. That's good news. And so what he has done is he has redeemed us. He's bought us back. And that he is also, also restoring us, resurrecting us. Letter D, he's restoring us. He's restored us. C was, uh, uh, I'm sorry. C was, was um, restored. No, C, resurrected. Stop it, y'all. You're making me confused. Uh, resurrected, yeah. A was redeemed. B was resurrected. C, oh, it was C. I'm sorry. I see what you're saying now. I got D on my paper. Y'all was right. I was wrong. Sorry, Fairview. We had a little quarrel right here with the front row. You didn't see what happened. Uh, <laughs> C, he's restored us. I, 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 keep me in line. Keep me in line. He's restored us, verse 6 and 7. <laughs> and he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what's happening here. He says that he has seated us, raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the magnitude of what he's saying there? Those same dark sinful, ravaging, terrible creatures in verses 1 through 3 who were dead in the trespasses of our sins, who were under the influence of Satan, who are children of wrath, who are far from God. It says that when he enters into the equation, he takes those same people and he elevates them into a place and he sets them at a heavenly position at the table with him. He has restored you back into fellowship with himself. Do you understand the magnitude of that? He's taken that same terrible, sinful creature in verses 1 through 3, and he has now translated him into a heavenly position with himself. It's the same person, but they ain't the same no more. They have a new nature. They were a new creation. They have a new heart. 
And he takes that old sinful creature and puts him in a position of, 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 of reigning with him. That's a beautiful thing. I, see, see, earlier I said, I hope you understand and appreciate what God has done for you. Are you getting the picture that there was no hope for you, that there was nothing in you that was ever going to be good enough, that you were far from God, that God had no obligation to love you, God had no obligation to save you? But, in, he, but then verse 4 says, but God, who is rich in mercy, he entered into the equation when you were dead, far from God, manipulated by Satan. He steps in, reaches out his hand, and all you got to do is take it. If God never does another thing for you, that is good enough. We should be praising him daily because, God, I know who I used to be. I know who I was. But you came to my rescue. You saw me when there was nothing lovable about me. Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When there was nothing in me that was lovable, desirable, lovely, he loved me. And he came to my rescue. And he has pulled me into a position where he has set me at the table with him. And he asked me to bring nothing. He didn't ask me to bring a casserole or nothing. He just says, come and eat. The table is ready. Just sit down. I love reading the Bible because you find so many amazing stories. Of people who are brought from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. I think of Joseph, who was sitting in an Egyptian prison. And then one day, he's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, and he's put in charge of all of Egypt and the known world. I think of people like Ruth, a poor widowed Moabite, no hope, helpless. Yet she finds a man and is redeemed and married by a Jewish man named Boaz, who has wealth and great standing. She's brought from the lows to the highs. I think of somebody like, like Mephibosheth, crippled, poor, no hope, but was exalted and seated at the table with King David. I think of people like, like old uh, King Manasseh. Now, he was the, one of the ru- ru- uh, uh, wickedest kings that Judah ever had, the 14th king of Judah. He was terrible. God humbled him, put him in captivity in a Babylonian jail. From that Babylonian jail, he cried out to God. He humbled himself. God, this is what amazes me, this wicked man, God heard his prayers. And he came to uh, uh, King Manasseh's help, reestablished him on the the throne of of Judah, made him to reign over Judah again, and he was a different man after that point. I think of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than it's ever been. And looking down in that pit, you thought for sure they were dead, but they saw a fourth man dancing around in the midst of them. Oh, that wicked king Nebuchadnezzar pulled him out of that pit, and now he put him back into a place of authority. He was impressed. They brought him from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs. I think of all these people. I think of Jonah. Jonah, who was swallowed by a well because of his disobedience and rebellion. He was told to go to Nineveh. He says, no, sir, I'm going to Tarsus. And then in that journey over there, a storm came. The people got scared, threw Jonah in the water, swallowed up by a well. From the belly of the well, he starts crying out to God to forgive him. He is sorry. And that well spit him up on the beach the very day next day. We see this time and time again where God takes people from the lows to the highs. But I'm telling you right now, believer in Christ, this is what you need to understand. I don't know how many stories you read in the Bible where you see people taken from lows to highs, but it never, it is never greater than the story of some wretched sinner taken out of the pit of their despair and placed at the table with Jesus for all of eternity. That is the greatest comeback story there is. That right there is an overcomer. 
That right there is the kind of story like that. That is the greatest story ever, and that is your story. Believer in Jesus, that is your story. He has taken you, raised you to a place you don't belong. Look at the way Paul writes over through all these verses. He says he raised us up. He's talking about God here. He raised us up. He made us sit together that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness. All throughout these verses, you see God is the one taking the initiative. God is the one pursuing us. God is the one coming to us. Time and time again, he's, ta- he's bringing us to a table to partake of a meal with him. He says, come as you are. Don't bring anything. I got enough for everyone. Then we get to verse 8. And it says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And this is the crux of everything we just read. Paul spends time setting up the table. He says, oh, oh, believer, you were dead. You were in bondage to sin. You were children of wrath. There was a time where you were in restraint to Satan. And you were far from God. That's who you were. But God, rich in mercy, great in love, made us alive in Christ and set us at the table that we don't belong. And Paul is making it clear that you were dead. You had no hope. You had no choice but to do what sin required of you to do. You were under bondage. You were children of wrath. You were hopeless. You were enslaved. And it came. God came to the rescue. God came to the rescue. You know why God does this? Because God will give to you his power. He will give to you his mercy, his grace, his favor. He will give, but he will not share his glory with you. And if you had anything to do with your own salvation, then you are robbing God of his glory. And so he is letting you, he's taking your hands off the whole thing. If I had a small sliver of the pie of my salvation, you know what I would do? I would brag about my peace. Look what I did. It's because I was so good. It's because I showed up. It's because I read my Bible. It's because I prayed. It's because I'm a good singer. It's because I have talent. It's because I went on mission trips. Look what I did. But God took my hands off the equation. He says, you know why? Because at the end of the day, he wants you to go, look what God did. Look what he did. And yet there are Christians who are attending churches who say that Jesus Christ is the one and only way to heaven. I read this article the other day. They're attending these churches who literally their doctrinal statement says eternal salvation comes only from faith in Jesus. And they asked them a question that says, do you believe you can get to heaven by good works? This is what the study showed. 46% of Pentecostals believed you can get to heaven by good works. 44% of Protestants, that would be Baptists, Southern Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, they believe, 44% believe that you can get to heaven by good works. Evangelical churches, 41% believed you can get to heaven by good works. Catholics, 70% of them believed you get to heaven by good works. And overall, 54% of U.S. adults in general believe they will get to heaven after they die by doing good works. We just read, there is no hope. No matter how good, no matter how hard you try. No matter how many churches you go to, you are dead in your sin, deceived by Satan, distant from God. No hope. You are not going to work your way out of that tunnel. No hope. 
the only hope is that God stepped down into the equation of your life and gave you His Son, Jesus Christ, to restore you, to redeem you, to resurrect you. That is your story. Every born-again believer in here, that is your story. I was dead, but God made me alive. That is your story. And so lastly, number three, all we have left to do is rest in His salvation. Rest in His salvation. Verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Verse 8 says you are saved. That word saved is the past present past perfect tense. In other words, it is, is, is written in a way where it shows that you have, it, it, the work has already been accomplished. You have been saved, but it's written in such a way that it shows that the work is going to continue. In other words, you might have been saved when you were 12, but that work is going to continue all the way up to glory. You don't have to re-up. It's not like a Sam's card membership. You don't have to renew it every year. It's not like an old change where you got to get a 3,000 mile checkup. All right. No, once you were saved, you are continually saved. It ain't going to change. It ain't going to waver. You know why I believe that? Because the same work on the cross that was enough to save you is the same work on the cross that was enough to keep you. The moment you say that I have to re-up, I have to try, I got to contribute, the moment, that's the moment you demean the, the level of what Jesus did on the cross for you. If, he was, if it was enough to save you, it is enough to keep you. You are saved and you're going to be continued to be saved. Verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. Your whole life, your whole life is the work of God. Your justification is a work of God. Your sanctification is a work of God. Your redemption is a work of God. Your glorification is a gift of God, is a work of God. Your resurrection is a work of God. Your salvation is a work of God. God is crafting and working and doing all of this on your life, and all you got to do is just rest in it. Say, God, thank you. I had no hope. I had no future. But God, I'm thankful you stepped into my life. To bring salvation. Because I was on a treadmill that was taking me nowhere. And you taken me and seated me at a position that I don't belong at a table where you said to bring nothing. You took me from the pit and you put me at the table with you. And so your story should be, I was dead. God made me alive. Your story should be, but God. Listen, if you struggle with your salvation, one or two things is happening. If you struggle with your salvation, I had a pastor friend of mine, evangelist, years ago, I was like 17 years old, recently saved. He came and spoke at our church and he said this. He says, If you've ever doubted your salvation, you are not saved. Well, that, that's, that troubled me. Because I did have doubts at times. I did struggle at times. I was recently saved. And I was still trying to figure things out. I was still a 17-year-old kid. And I believe you can be saved and still have questions and doubts along the way. But here's, here's two things I believe. Two reasons why I believe you might be struggling in your salvation, doubting your salvation. Number one is that you're not saved. You've been trying to convince yourself that you are. You've, trying to, you, you, you've tried to put on to act like you are. You've been in church your whole life. You grew up in church. Your mom and daddy took you to church. 
And you know there has never been a moment in your life where you surrendered your life to Jesus, but you've been going through the motions as if you have. And so you're very good at being religious. But you, you have zero relationship. And the problem is that you know that you're not saved. And you're scared. Let's just be honest. You're scared. You're scared of what people might think. You're scared of what, what people's opinion will be of you. Well, people think I'm saved. What if they realize I'm not? <laughs> They'll be happy for you. I ain't going to hell for nobody. And so if you're concerned about what people might think, well, Christmas is coming. What do they find out I'm not saved? That's going to be an awkward conversation. No, it's not. Because your, your story can now be, ah, well, I thought I was saved, but God. That could be your new story. And so number one reason why you might be doubting your salvation is because truly you may not be. And you know, you know in your heart of hearts, Fairview, the people out there, you know in your heart of hearts who it is. You know that you're not saved. But you're hoping that feeling will go away. It won't. And first of all, you hope it don't. You hope, you hope that conviction of, of your salvation being not saved, you hope that doesn't go away. You hope that God will continue to draw you and draw you and draw you because the day that stops, you're in trouble. Secondly, the other reason you might be doubting your salvation is you're trying to do too much. You're trying to do too much. Because you still, in our human mind, still think that somehow I have to bring something to the table in order for God to love me. And so on those days, when you really stink it up, and you say bad words while you're driving down Coleman, and, and you ain't reading your Bible like you should, and you're listening to Waylon Jennings instead of the Gaithers. All right, you, 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 you kind of catch yourself. You kind of have backslidden a little bit, doing into some old ways and old habits. In those moments, you begin to ask the question, am I saved? But in those days where you're really doing well, and you're reading your Bible, and you shared your faith, and you had a good service at church, and you're listening to awesome music on the radio, worship music, and you're just living life and being close to Jesus. You don't have those thoughts on those days, do you? You know what we have done? We have conditioned God's love. We had made it in our minds that God loves us less on our bad days and loves us more on our good days. That is not how God's love operates. Because if God's love was enough to come to you when you were that old, wretched, vile creature, dead in your sins, manipulated by Satan and far from him, if he had enough love to come at you in that moment to step down into your story and resurrect you, redeem you, and restore you to a place of honor, I promise you there's enough love to cover your bad days. And so if you struggle in your salvation, I hope you understand it has nothing to do with you anyways. Your salvation was all of God's handiwork. You are his workmanship. He came to your rescue. When you couldn't rescue yourself. Jesus' death was not only enough to keep you on your good days, it's also enough to keep you on your bad days. You ain't got to worry about it. And the Bible makes it clear. I don't, I've never found anywhere in here. The Bible tells us that when we gave our life to Jesus, that we have been transferred from death to life. You know, I've never seen anywhere in the scripture where that goes in reverse. I've never seen when anybody is transferred from life to death. You know why? This is a one-way street. Once Christ enters into your story and you've been translated from death to life, you are not going to go back to death. He's going to keep you in life. Does that make sense? That is your story. Far from God, dead, distant from Him. 
But God stepped down into your equation, resurrected, redeemed you, restored you. And now all you have to do is just rest in his more than enoughness. And all you can say is, God, I had nothing to do with it. You did all the work. So thank you, God. I'm going to boast in you and you alone. If you never do another thing for me, oh God, this was enough. This was enough because I know who I was and I know who you made me to be. I may not be who I want to be, but I thank God I'm not who I used to be. So God, thank you so much for stepping down into my story. When there was nothing lovable about me, you looked down and you loved me. That's your story. And if your story sounds anything other than that, you need to change your story. Because there is no, I tried harder, I did better, I turned over a new leaf, I'm a good person. You are not a good person. Dead in your sin. That is your condition. And until God enters into your situation, you'll be stuck that way. The Bible says it is the gift of God. Christmas is right around the corner. I remember when I was a boy, I was about 12 years old, I wanted, I remember this clear as day, I wanted a daisy pellet rifle. This is not, not the Red Rider one where you pump it and it goes boom, and you can see the BB come out the end of the barrel. No, I wanted a pellet gun where you crank that baby up, and you could shoot a squirrel 100 yards away. That's what I wanted. And I remember opening all my presents on Christmas morning, and I didn't get a, I didn't get a daisy pellet gun. I was disappointed. It was on my face. It was all over. I was disappointed. And I remember my mom. My mom asked me, she says, well, honey, what's wrong? Well, I think, this is such a jerk thing to say. Your parents did all that for you, and you're like, I didn't get the present I wanted. You know, so I said, I didn't get the present. And about that time, my stepdad, my stepdad comes around the corner, he's holding this box, and it's a daisy pellet rifle. Oh, man, I was so, oh, I was so excited. I, now, listen, listen. If he would have given me that pellet rifle, he says, here you go, Andrew. Here's your gift. But the only way you can keep it is if you wash the car every week, vacuum the house every day, make sure all the laundry is kept up, make sure the dishes are out of the sink, and make sure that you make all the beds in the house. If you can do all that every, every week, you can have the rifle. You know what I would said? Keep the rifle. <laughs> <laughs> You know what happens? The moment you put conditions onto a gift, it ceases to be gift. What happens now, the moment you put conditions onto a gift, is it now becomes payment for work that you have done. I believe God's a good gift giver. And I believe when He gives a gift, he's He's not putting conditions on it. I believe he's not trying to manipulate us. And so when he's offering the gift of salvation to us, I believe it's a gift. And all you have to do is receive it. He's not going to ask you to work for it. He's not going to ask you to go and earn it because that would be payment for the work you have done. That's not how this works. It's a gift. So that he gets all the glory and you get all the benefit. It's a gift. 